0: Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. All
1: right, welcome to Chapter 8, 2001 e-learning standards. Today I'm joined for the book club conversation with Lorna Campbell and Phil Barker. Welcome.
2: Hello. Hi, thanks for having us
1: all right let's get into it i've previously talked about learning objects but we're going to talk about the e-learning standards that maybe are surrounding the past two chapters on e-learning and learning objects and bringing it together maybe maybe not
2: what do you think you two you two are the experts i hear (laughs) um i think i think learning technology standards were, or the hope was that they would underpin um interoperable learning objects and interoperable systems. That was really the... That was the aim of learning technology standards. And it was actually, I think, a very admirable admirable goal. Uh, what we wanted, or what people who were involved in developing standards were trying to do was to prevent education organisations from being locked into systems. Because we all knew that if you invested in an institution-wide system, all your content into it or all your data into it or all your information into it and then wanted to shift another system further down the line without interoperability then that's a huge and very costly overhead so i think the goal of education technology standards to make these interoperable systems and to make this interoperable content was a really really good idea but the problem was that it didn't really work in practice for a large number of reasons which i think we'll probably get into during the course of this conversation so so yeah i think standards to some extent are inextricably, inextricably bound up with the idea of learning objects and i think maybe the some of the reasons why learning objects did not really work is the same reasons that learning is not all but many learning technology standards work, did not do the job that they set out to do what do you think phil is that a-
0: yeah yeah i think that's right but i mean, for me it wasn't just a case of you know having your own content and putting it into a system and then wanting to migrate to the next system that you used a lot of the really high quality learning resources that i saw at the time just took so much effort to develop that it wasn't feasible to use them for just one person's course or you know in just one place. So you needed to be able to create content that could be shared among several different organisations and used in um, different contexts. Used in you know across many different universities, for example, that were teaching similar courses. So you know for me, it, it seemed that if we were going to get high quality learning resources, um, it they couldn't be developed for just one course. So they needed to be interoperable. They needed to work across many different systems that were being used by the different people who might benefit from the results.
1: Yeah, the previous chapter, um, and Brian talked about this in our book club too, is we just had these little pieces and objects that uh, were standing on their own and we never had anything to kind of loop them together. And around the mid-90s, Educause is one of the groups that was mentioned in this chapter, but they started that Um, Structural Management Systems, IMS, to kind of think about um, how e-learning standards might come together and address some of the problems which are um, platforms and content developers and using different formats and having them speak and talk to one another in a more cohesive way. And so I think this is where you two come in because you started thinking about these standards in a different way uh, across the pond in the UK. Um, Can you share a little bit about what your background is in that area? Because it was really great to learn that I have the people who started it all there and tried to figure it out.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. we should probably, this is where we add our, our um, disclaimer or perhaps <laughs> the declaration of interest that um, both Phil and I worked for an organisation called CETUS, which was the Centre for Education, Technology and Interoperability Standards and that was a national JISC service. So we were funded by the JISC, which was a, a national technology body and our job we were a distributed organisation that was spread out across the UK and our job was to represent UK higher and further education on a number of international standards bodies. We did other things as well but that was that was one of our core remits. So we actually sat on a n- number of these standards bodies, we were members of IMS for example, um, members of IEEE, participating in Dublin Core and we were there to represent UK higher and further education's interests on those standards bodies. And I think it was recognised that developing standards, the hardest thing about developing standards is achieving consensus, Um, particularly when you have very many different interests in the room. And our job was to be able to present a UK consensus within these standards bodies to ensure that the standards are produced would meet the requirements of UK higher and further education. That was extremely challenging when you looked at the breadth of organisations participating in these standards initiatives, and particularly in an organisation like IMS, um, where a lot of standards were very much coming from a more industry perspective. Uh, so, so yeah, it was, it was interesting work, but it was challenging.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we talk about across industries. I still think higher ed is one. And I do think, but you're right, we have some different terminologies, vernaculars, objectives, (laughs) motives, I say. And I think um, it was interesting to read this because in my talks with the, um, just talking about the learning objects folks and uh, John Robertson was on that conversation And we, as a librarian himself I was surprised to see the Dublin Core come into this chapter and the way it was talked about because I didn't see any librarians at the table that were actually in these conversations or was I wrong am I wrong to think that was there other people helping support interpreting what was mentioned of the Dublin Core metadata applied to learning um, so that's what I want to follow up here a little background on that.
2: Bill, do
0: you want to go for this one? We did in the UK have um, library input. We had a, um, a sister organisation called UConn which was, I can't remember what UConn stand, st- stood for, can you Lorna? I can.
2: I uh, think you. I think you. U-
0: call- UK Office of Library Network. Oh, well done. Something Went like done. that, I think. You um, that. But you know, their remit was similar to ours. You know, help with the development of standards. But for them, it was in the library world, and we worked very closely with um, counterparts in Yukon when it came to. Um, uh, any standards that uh, were, were re- relevant to you know metadata, for example, or to repositories, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the ones that touched on the, the library world. And, you know, we did when we were um, gathering requirements, um, discussing the, the specifications while they were in development, we, we did talk to librarians and we had librarians come to our meetings and talk about what they were doing. Um, and they found it very difficult, I think, that, that, that you know, the, the, the fully trained um, cataloguing librarians were so used to describing a resource, the resource in hand as it was, you know, in, in objective terms, you know, describe the content, that's fine, you know, the subject matter, who wrote it, that sort of thing. But then, you know, we had the educators coming in and say, but, but how might it be used? And that's when librarians began to sort of get. What do you mean? How might it be used? You know, it. We can describe what it is, but you know, I, I, I guess with a book, you read the book. So you know, traditional library cataloging doesn't go a great deal into how it might be used. Uh, and that's that's when we started looking at things, Lorna, like um, paradata, you know, recording yeah. how a resource had been used yeah.
2: and, th- uh, and, and things like that. This is one of the real paradoxes about. I mean, if you're, if when we look at the standards that were designed to describe educational content, so for example, the IEEE long, which is frequently held up as probably being, um, probably one of the most difficult standards to work with. I'm trying to be polite here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I spent a lot of time working with the standard, it wasn't good. It was very complex, and one of the reasons for that complexity was it wasn't just describing a thing, it was describing many different aspects of that thing, and in particular, how that thing might be used. So, once you get into that territory, you're getting further and further away from the intrinsic nature of the thing. And more and more into very speculative realms of how, you know, the myriad possibilities of how it could be used. And that is the real paradox of trying to describe how a resource can be used in learning, because that is not something that is intrinsic to the resource, because you can use anything in learning. I mean, Bill and I spent years, years in meetings trying to define what a learning resource was. And of course the answer to that is it can be anything. But if you're trying to codify that and pin it down in a standard, it's really difficult because what makes a thing a learning resource is not the thing itself, but how it's used. Yeah. And that's when it gets really difficult.
0: Yeah, so it- and you know, we, we, we have to remember that learning is not something that's delivered. You know, learning is an activity. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Learning is not content. Um, learning is, learning is a, a verb, not a noun.
1: No, I love that you both said that because I think of these standards and why you stumped the librarians was yeah Dublin Core metadata. For anyone wants to get nerdy, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, is really about describing descriptors for content, uh, and you probably are struggling with industry folks that were beyond higher ed because they're delivering training. I hear that all the time. Uh, virtual instructor led. And I was like, we're talking about these content objects instead of talking about um, the pedagogies, the processes, the strategies, and the methodologies. So um, standard is an interesting term. And those who define the standard also come with, I, I think, some sort of bias or assumption of what that standard might be for anything. And when it comes to learning, we all have our own two cents on that. And I, I could see where the, um, some of these, what you're talking about is the UK Learning Object Metadata Core, UK LUM Core, um, kind of butted heads, it sounds, with IEEE or what IMS was thinking about at the time at Educause and m- maybe even with the librarians set as standards because we all had different perspectives of what teaching and learning was, especially in, in the online digital spaces where kind of playing it
2: kind of kind of not i think and i think this is where there's a little bit of confusion in the chapter is how how all these um standards related to each other and i'm sure martin won't won't mind us saying this and again i think this is something that we want to pick up in the conversation is that the 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 two main standards that were being used to describe um learning resources were dublin core and ieee long and it, there were only wars, the two of them. Um, the LOM was such a huge standard that very few people implemented the whole thing. So what they tended to do was implement an application profile of it. They would choose the elements that they would want and just use those. And then the idea was that if you published your application profile, people would be able to take that and know which elements you'd use so you could exchange data So what the UK LOM Corps was, was an application profile of the LOM. It was a subset, a much smaller subset, of the main standard, which we designed for use within the UK higher and further education sector as part of like JISC projects. So it wasn't anything different from the LOM, it was just this little subset of it. And we provided guidance on how to use these elements so that that's kind of like the relationship so Dublin core is a much simpler standard the long was the one that has the what is it 84 86 elements I used to know them all can't remember any of them now <laughs> and the long core was a subset of that and I think we are we are eventually got the long core down to a subset of about 20 or something or even less I think so that's how they're related but Phil do you want to sort of raise a point about you know why there is this confusion between them
0: yeah, I mean it. it you know, it relates back to something that I mentioned earlier that we tried to get input from educators like Martin on what would they like to see in metadata, and that meant that um, we we gave them these documents that were you know full of XML, large tables with um, strange terms in them like what was it lo- lo- lowest, <laughs> permitted <maximum. Yeah? laughs> lowest permitted maximum? Yeah, lowest permitted maximum. <laughs> um, and, and the like um, and um, you know we're asking educators for for feedback on this and the the martin raises the point towards the end of his chapter that you know that the, the standards that are successful have sunk into the background whereas what we were doing is we were bringing them into the foreground and asking educators about them uh, and just confusing these educators for, for um, well we did get some good feedback from them but I, I think the overall effect was um, detrimental to everybody's well-being um, and um, you know so yeah Ma- Martin I think in the chapter has said some things about doubling core or implied some things about doubling core being difficult to use and um, you know bringing educators out in cold sweat or something like that but and and I felt a little bit bad reading those because you know I know I know the people who are involved in Dublin core and you know they they, they do a good job and everything. Uh, if he'd said those things about the about the lom then I would have fully agreed with him. Um, yeah. Yeah. On the other hand Lorna how would you fancy reading out the lom? I mean reading out the 15 elements of Dublin core for the for, for the <laughs> for, for the book was bad enough you yeah, know if we'd have to read out the lom that would have <laughs> not worked so well.
2: Well, not at all. But I think there, there, there is an interesting point there that Phil's raised, which um, isn't. I mean, it's, it's Martin mentions it briefly in the chapter, but I think it does bear repeating. Is that we're talking about standards? It, it Phil and I just now, and the the, majority, the bulk of the chapter talks about standards that were not successful. You know, they tried to do something useful. The, the metadata standards, they weren't really successful in their approach. But as Martin said, they did. Um I think they were a useful jumping off point for what went on to become open education resources. But there were quite a lot of other standards that were actually very successful that people tend to forget about. And I think one of them was, was QTI, the question and test interoperability standard, which again was pretty Baroque, but actually worked. It worked quite well, and there was one of the reasons I think it did work quite well is there was more practice. People wanted to share. Um, Uh, test items more than they wanted to share education resources, to be honest. Um, So for
1: that standard, can we unpack that a bit just for our listeners that are dropping in and going, what are they even talking about? Can you give an example of uh, something that might be shared from an educator? Um,
2: So so the question and test interoperability standard was designed for exchanging um, questions. So assessment items Mm -hmm. so that you could have a bank of question types that you could um you could draw from to make um different assessments. And the idea was that if you use this specification, you could exchange questions between item banks. So that, that was all it was designed to do. And it actually did do that and it did that oh. quite well. Mm-hmm. And, it
0: and also I, I mean I, I remember you know a lot of the conversations that we had with our colleagues at UConn um and with Scott Wilson as well was whether education specific standards were the way to go you know a lot of the standards that have been most useful in education weren't entirely developed for education in the first place Um, you know one which is really successful and that nobody knows is what lets you use you know eduro if you've you know identity management standards that allow you to log on to wi-fi you know if you're affiliated with one educational institution you can log on to the the wi-fi at another one in many countries around the world, um, you know that that's been a great success and um, you know of of great benefit. I think to to educators. And another example, we're, we're doing this as a podcast, so. You know we we can talk about a podcast as being content that's embedded in an rss feed uh, with metadata so that you know the description of that content can be syndicated to different um feed syndication points and the content can be downloaded onto people's um, devices and you get a nice display in your um your, your podcast uh, app telling you you know what all the different episodes are that's a great example of the sort of of interoperability standard allowing content to travel from one device to another mm-hmm. pretty much what we wanted to do with you know things like IMS content packaging and IEEE long yeah yeah
1: that's a great example and I, I think you're right Phil you earlier said the educators didn't want to see the standards they actually just it's like the mainframe of a house they just wanted to have the the fancy the carpets and the or the wall is, and flooring and paint but they're actually built around these things that were created in your standards I think you said you had 84 UK LOM core standards at one point is that true and you went down to 20 what's the number oh,
2: so the, <laughs> what's the number of elements in the LOM do you know I used to know all this stuff it was all this stuff. <laughs> i I had
0: 76 in mind but there's so many (laughs) different ways so so many different ways of counting them and okay okay
2: and and one yeah it does it depends on you count them but the other thing about the the uk long cord that application profile we had several versions of it for different things and that again that was the way application profiles were supposed to work is that you create an application profile for a specific purpose and it might be bigger or smaller depending on what that purpose is Um,
1: So you're customizing essentially what a standard could look like, depending on how or where it's used it sounds like.
2: Yeah. yeah. Great. You're cutting it it down and you're going to say, well I'm going to use these five elements because they're the only ones that I need, and you you publish that so other people can, if they want to interoperate with you, they can see how you're implementing the standard. And this is
1: common, like uh, in using myself, using Dublin Core or other Things to create um, databases or ca- like catalogs. Um, each institution, campus, organization will choose what metadata they want to include. They might have like these are the standards across, and they may not use all. Like Dublin Core, will pick on for the fifteen. They may not use all fifteen, and they might say we must have these must be the must haves, just so we can talk across, share, and in- include your item into whatever. And so for learning, I guess that sounds like a great idea is to customize it because there's no way as As an educator, I'd be like, how many do you want me to do and look at and write about? And that's a lot. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Were there other things in your reading of the chapter that kind of stood out that you had a second thought about or um, you were kind of considering as you reflect back? Because I don't think it was all negative. I think what you all were part of at the time um, did really lend us to evolve into OER, open education resources, and other things that we... Take for granted online these days.
2: Yeah, no, I, th- I thought it was. I thought it was a very fair chapter. Um, like I said, you know, barring this this slight like, confusion between the different standards, I absolutely agreed with everything Martin was saying in it. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, I think we had to go through that process to, and again, like, as I said right back at the beginning, the, the the goal of what these standards were trying to do was really admirable. But it, it just didn't really work. But I think to some extent we, we had to go through that process to figure that out and to, to figure out what we didn't want to do. Yeah. So one example of that is um, 2009.
0: Eight or nine, yeah. yeah. 2009,
2: 2009, I think it was, um, there was a large program funded in england not the whole of the uk but in england called um, the uk oer project and that was about i think it was it ran over three years i think it was about five five million pounds worth of public funding went into that it was administered by jisc and higher education academy and the organization that phil and i worked for um provided the technical strategy so for, for that um program that program so we advised how the resources should be uh, managed how they should be um exchanged so i've just been joined by my cat here um, love cats in the pod that's nice <laughs> this is
1: josh <laughs> josh nice to meet you you have something to say about the oer uk oer project what would josh tell us you've
2: learned yeah. from that um but the the approach we took to that programme was not to go down a standard heavy route because we had tried that in previous programmes and learned that it didn't work. So when it came to the UK OER programme, which was like the first large-scale OER initiative in, in the UK, we basically said to people, put the resources anywhere that, that is going to be useful to you. Try and put them somewhere that you can get an RSS feed out of, so they can then be um, aggregated. We give them. A, we didn't even tell them what uh, metadata standards to use. We just say make sure that, that your resource is accompanied by a, a title, your name, the date, subject, a couple of other small bits of piece. UKOER hashtag.
0: Yeah. Hashtag
2: UKOER. And there was some discussion about this approach and that people were like, how, you know, how are people going to be able to find things? Everything's going to disappear. It's all going to be a big mess. Blah, blah, blah. The program ran for three years. And um, that hashtag is still in use. So you can actually still look on platforms like YouTube and Twitter and find resources tagged UKOER some of which date right back to the original program from over 10 years ago. And some of them are new. I mean, I know people on Twitter who still use that hashtag. And I think that shift from formal standards to what at the time was called things like Foxonomies folks and Web2 and you know all that kind of stuff, I think did mark a real shift that came in round about the same time as open education and OER.
0: And I think that was really significant. And it's also, and also at that point, and going back to metadata, um, we switched the focus from sort of structured metadata to um, providing a a description of the resource. And um, so it's something you mentioned, Laura, earlier, and which is in Martin's book, um is the idea that you've got this resource and then you catalog it Mm. and that was something that we said no 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 it it shouldn't really work like this and it was john robertson who articulated this best when he said that the the resources themselves would be self-describing you know you wouldn't no, no academic would write a paper without putting a title at the top, a list of the authors underneath that. Underneath that, there'd be a, um, you know, an abstract, and then a few, you know, probably get some keywords, the date that it was written, that sort of thing. Th- these are things that, you know, they, that um, academics would naturally put into a, a research paper that they were writing. Um, and yet, you take the same people and tell them to create a learning resource, and suddenly you get something with no contextualising information whatsoever. So, you know, the the, the thrust was to, to, to say, okay, you know, put the contextualizing information into the resource. And, you know, hopefully we'll be able to, you know, pull that information out later. Better still is, um, you know, if you're using a, a content management system um, that allows that sort of contextualizing information to be uh, entered as separate fields, then you're creating the metadata at the same time as you're creating the um, the resource and i, th- I think I th- this is touching a little bit on you know one reason why i think a lot of these a lot of the education standards failed is because the, the tooling that was created for it for them was really quite crude Mark Martin gives the example in the chapter of the um, UKE university where, Mm -hmm. you know, they'd have a resource and they'd be cataloging it. But if any change was made to the resource, all of the metadata had to be created again from scratch. And, you know, when I read that part of the chapter, I thought, yeah, you know, that's why they failed. Yeah. And
1: anyone listening, um, as we've trip back the way back machine to the nineties and early, early aughts. This wasn't a time where we had those interconnections. So I love Lorna that you brought up the UK OER project. I'll put the hashtag in to see what's still out there in the world. Um, because I think part of what is being said in a few of these between the chapter episodes is, We never really had the means at that time to really share. Web 2.0 was just starting. Um, We weren't social with our media. And we also didn't see value in that sharing. So a lot of these ground work chapters, including the e-learning standards, I do think form um, not only OER, but Creative Commons, like how do you um, kind of license, share, Mm -hmm. remix, and these are some of the early groundworks and rumblings, and also the idea that you're thinking about that long tail, you're not just like, let's put this up for this term or semester but how could we go back to that um, a few years from now, five years from now? And could we even access that? Like people don't remember like who in our offices still have maybe floppy discs from God knows when hard little square discs that they've maybe, yes. Like I know that Phil's going to show us right now. Yeah. There you go. Square hard discs. Like I'm thinking about all this. Yeah. And even like that's even put USB keys in there. So zip keys, USB keys are probably going to be, obsolete because we haven't really thought about long-term um not just storage but use and movement and evolution that we are now it it wasn't moving that fast back then and yeah. we really need to think more about that um yeah, because I, I think that's somewhat of what the standards it seemed like we're doing technically but you also were saying standards that were helping people pedagogically
2: yeah wrong oh yeah no definitely and i think <laughs> I think it is easy to forget what the technology landscape was was like then because it has moved so fast. I mean, I remember like people sort of like putting scorn on the idea that you know pe- one day people would use Google to find, to find educational content. That just what? Seemed, mm. Yeah, <laughs> <just seemed laughs> <up. laughs> Caroline, <rely> Google. <laughs> well, and you know, there's an argument to be had there. However, I think it is, yeah, particularly you know, web two hadn't really happened at that stage, and I think it's impossible to talk about education and technology standards in any critical way without um, thinking about the, about the technology landscape at the time and the type of, of what ed tech was like and how we thought it would work. And particularly when we're talking about resource description standards, metadata standards, they were so bound up in this idea of the repository that content had to be stored in repositories. And a lot of that came it was a bit it was a real hangover from the from what we would now call the open access space, the scholarly workspace, where you keep things in a repository. Now that, that works for for static resources, whether they're books or their journals or their papers, they are they are things that are at the end point of their development process. They're not really going to change. Education resources are much more fluid they change rapidly, they change continually, um, they're revised, they're changed, they're used for all different purposes, they don't fit well into formal repositories, but despite that being the case, in the UK, and I I know in other countries as well, there was a lot of investment in learning object repositories, and I don't know if the the guy spoke about this in your previous uh, podcast, but the learning object repositories were really struggled to survive. They were hugely expensive, I mean, vastly expensive, required ent- sometimes whole teams of people to manage them. They required buy-in from the educators, particularly if they were national repositories, putting content into them, as Phil said. You know, frequently you had to, like, fill in all these complicated forms and whatnot. Uh, and, of course, as soon as the funding dried up, the repositories disappeared. And a lot and- of content... With it, and it's the content that went into places like YouTube and Flickr that actually survived.
0: And a, a lot of the um, learning object repositories were essentially closed. You know, they they, they were um, gatekeepers telling you, you know, what you couldn't couldn't put in, um, <laughs> and and in, in um, you know, in some cases. You had to be a member of a certain community in order to get access to the material that was in there, and you know I think that was one of the things that um, OER did that was very good was that it, it focused people's attention on you know the the main objective, which is you know sharing these resources, getting as many people using the resources as possible, um, and not wasting money on things like access management.
1: Yeah, I think the opening up of the gates, and this is something I I can think in higher ed happens a lot. In In the academy, we like to store knowledge and think we are the keepers of, versus what would it mean to have a community around Um, sharing and exchanging and critiquing that and I love that um, that's where some of this background work of e-learning standards sounds like it did just weave into the next kind of um, few chapters that Martin will write about but also the work that we're still doing today I think is still relevant and when you ask someone what an e-learning standard is now they probably don't know this history, and they probably don't aren't even aware of how it's woven into the fabric of how they work in learning technology or being a online or digital learning um, instructor faculty. They're just trying to figure it out these days. Um, but I think it's uh, the building blocks of what we could have deeper conversations. Which I found interesting as um, now in the I'm living in the U.S. now. We have other standards that are somewhat less technical but come from the background of like we need to make our information accessible we need to think about ways we can um, create some sort of communication interaction with our courses and i really love that some of the groundwork that you all had started is exposing um more of the other i guess teaching and learning needs really than anything else
2: yeah and i think i think you're right and i think that's a very good example of the fact that you know it's it's very easy to, to you know to pour scorn on the the whole e-learning standards project and say, oh, it it didn't work. And And to some extent, a lot of it didn't work, but it was a very significant learning experience. And we do still, you know, as you both said, we do still need standards and we are still using them. It's just that they are now down in the weeds where they should always have been, you know, we, we don't need to see them. We need, but we all rely on them. One, I mean, one of the other standards that was really successful, that was developed just a little later than the ones we've been talking about, was the, the LTI standard, the Learning and Learning Tools Interoperability standard, which is widely used by many institutions today to join their their ed tech systems together, and it, it just works you know nobody really needs to talk about it or know about it too much it just you know it just does the job and similarly metadata you know google's knowledge graph does still use metadata it's still there it's just you know educators don't need to see it anymore well you're still working in this space you love e-learning
0: standards I'm still working on metadata standards, yes. (laughs) uh, Doing a fair amount of work with Dublin Core. Um, I'm still defining application profiles. Um, And um, Lorna just mentioned um, how Google uses metadata. Um, One of the the long-running projects that I've had, um, it's getting on for 10 years old now, is um, putting some of the... Allowing people to describe some of the educational characteristics of resources, using the same sort, same metadata schema as Google uses. Um, it's still relevant. Yeah, still going I, on. Um, yeah. Tr- trying to focus on small, simple things that can be done, to you know, with simple use cases like help somebody who suddenly found that they've got to um, learn, got to be teaching online for some reason, you know, they haven't planned to do it a few months before, but they're doing it now. And they've got to find online learning resources that will help them teach uh, some particular point in a, a curriculum that they're they're teaching to. Um, you know, use cases like that are still relevant.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm in industry and it's funny to see how metadata and SCORM um, it is part of the formal standards because I, it, we still use it in X API, Things, finding out how things are being utilized or not, Mm -hmm. or failing. Um, So I think it's the the underlying technical things that yeah many many people coming to this podcast that aren't eh, loving the standards and metadata life eh, but they're coming to it knowing that this is woven into the fabric of what they're teaching and learning with i think will be really critical Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are there any other questions that you want to pose to either martin or the community about um learning technology standards or what you're thinking about from this chapter that we haven't talked about oh
2: that's a difficult one Mm i don't i mean i think I think it is important to, to to remember what we learned from this process um, so that we don't try and do it again. <laughs> I think we're kind of, we're very good at uh, forgetting the history of ed tech. And I know this is something mm-hmm. that, that, you know, Audrey Waters has written a lot about, you know, the who gets to write ed tech history. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I really... I really like Martin's book because it just puts it down there year by year. Um, And I think it is important to remember all these things that we tried, all these things that we did. Um, Because if we forget about that, then there's a good chance that a vendor's going to come along and tell us that, you know, they're going to disrupt education and look at this fabulous new thing that they've done. And, you know, there's going to be half a dozen people in the background going, we tried that 15 years ago. We know it doesn't work, but nobody listens to them. So I think it's, um, uh, I mean, we were talking about our backgrounds earlier on. I'm, I'm actually an archaeologist by background. That's that's really what I'm, my academic background is, and a historian. Um, and I, I do think it's really, really important that we remember the history of EdTech, how we got here. And I think it's particularly important that we remember the stuff, that, the stuff that didn't work, because there is a tendency to, sh- you know, to try and brush that under the carpet. And like I said, if we do that, we risk wasting a lot of time and effort trying to recreate things and repositories are a case in point um that we just know don't work so i think that that would be not so much a question but i think that would be my takeaway from this chapter in particular which is very much talking i think about um not every you know some things work but a lot of it didn't but we need to remember why
0: yeah i have nothing to add to that i think (laughs) Perfect.
2: (laughs) Summed it up well. No, I thank
1: you so much. I think what I'm going to take away from this is um, we could do more pre-mortems. So we've learned lessons already. So going into a potential new project or a new um, innovation that someone comes out, it's not being the negative Nancy on my side, but it's more about thinking about what are the challenges we're going to face from what we've learned and what can we call out before going into it. So instead of – taking these lessons learned going into anything new because we might have to get to a point where we think about these standards again because we have to build it somewhere else Um, I don't know what's going to happen with the web and all online learning things but maybe we come in there and talk about the potential blockers or challenges that we've learned from um, e-learning standard development in the early aughts it's kind of what I'm thinking about these days and not to be negative about it and saying well you've done that before but more around the what can we do better from what we know in the past, yeah. I really like that, Lorna. So thank you for sharing that.
2: I mean, absolutely, and just if I can just add one other point there. Yeah, you know, it's like you said, we we it, it is very hard to predict how the technology landscape is going to develop because we can't predict what's going to happen to the world. And I think we're a case in point is right now, where you know for the last four or five years, most education institutions have been outsourcing a lot of their um, tech with organisations who have been shifting into the cloud because that was a more efficient, more cost-effective way to do things. Now, with the pandemic, with everyone suddenly having to put everything online, the sheer volume of content that is being put into the cloud is astronomical. So the costs associated with that are really hitting the companies, the ed tech vendors, and they're starting to try and push these costs back down onto the institutions, understandably. And something's going to something's going to give. Something is, you know, that that's not sustainable. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens if that model breaks. That this idea that we can just keep shoving stuff into the cloud and it's cost effective and it'll be fine, because suddenly it's becoming very, very expensive and maybe it's not going to be fine soon so it could be that we you know we might end up doing another sort of full cycle of tech development and the whole idea of interoperability standards of a different kind comes back right again
1: well we'll never not have work out there I feel uh Phil Lorna thank you so much I'm glad that we could have this conversation so I appreciate you joining
0: me to have a chat (laughs) thank you Lorna it's been a pleasure You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of Ed Tech, visit 25years.opened.ca.